Hello and good evening and welcome to this particular live stream. This is a special live stream tonight. Uh, we've got some breaking news coming out of Afghanistan. We've got, uh, we're an expert on uh, getting ready to talk to you about the fact that former and current Afghan employees have been in, in the protests in Kabul today. They've been protesting against the slowness of the Australian government to get them recognised and get them out of what is looking like a very dangerous place indeed. The Kabul uh, protests involved former and current employees of the embassy. The main message to the Australian government, quite bluntly, was that the, the government needs to get its act together. Otherwise, a Taliban bullet might actually become the very thing that beats the Australian bureaucracy. Now, joining me is Patrick Ryan. Patrick is someone who's been with uh, and familiar with the Afghan story for a very long time. He worked with the embassy uh, back in the early uh, 2010s and 2011, 2012. He'll take us through precisely what has gone on why people have been protesting, what is required to get them out of there and what the future steps are. Pat, thank you for joining me. Tom, it's always a great pleasure. Now, uh, the protest today, uh, I've read the actual words that were were spoken, that were sort of put forward in Kabul. Um there's no mixing of words, is there, when it comes to the way in which um, this has uh, this has all come about? There's quite blunt, blunt words in that particular speech. Yes. Uh, well, you know, when you're dealing with a life and death situation um, in a country where the uh, coalition forces that supported uh, stability and security, particularly in Kabul province, which has always been uh, the last bastion for Afghanistan as far as security, uh, is rapidly deteriorating, then obviously the, uh, the people involved need to be very clear in their message to the Australian government. Uh, so the, uh, the images of the protests that we may see uh, are reflecting that. I've been working with this particular group of people who are my former uh, colleagues and uh, associates at the embassy since uh, I left at the end of 2012. Um, I've helped them uh, have a voice through advocacy and mentoring because one of the things that I, I guess is perhaps not uh, apparent to ordinary Australians watching this unfold is the way business is done in Afghanistan is culturally different to Australia, as Afghanistan is culturally different to Australia in many other ways. Um, so understanding that they could do something like write a petition letter to the Australian foreign minister at the time, Julie Bishop, was a little bit alien to them. Um, but look, they're very resourceful people and you know certainly uh, quite powerfully intelligent, I mean, for example, today uh, we had Dr. Ishmael uh, Husseini reading a speech to the international media. Uh, now, he is uh, a doctor of pharmacy um, and he 
um, you know, was very clear in his message um, about their situation. So you're dealing with educated people. Um, it's just a case of helping them to understand uh, how to reach out to the Australian government and put their case. Um, so, you know, I hope the result of, of this particular uh, demonstration today, which I think will be the last one because of the deteriorating security situation, will really bring that message home. Speech actually does make a point that there was um, uh, clear that the people that work for Australia are under threat um, and that this is, as you say, probably their last public gathering together as they go back in a hiding and they try and resolve the issue. Now, and you talk to the, these guys frequently, um, probably at all hours of the day. What's the, what's the situation like on the ground? How would you explain it to, to people who watch this? Well, uh, I think the situation on the ground has been uh, shown very clearly in, clearly in the international media. Um, you know, we're seeing province after province falling to the Taliban. We're seeing atrocities being committed against uh, the Australian, uh, the Afghan uh, National Police Force and the Afghan National Army. Uh, only a few days ago, uh, they executed quite a few special forces commandos. Um, and... Uh, you know, these guys have had uh, threats made to them almost on a daily basis. I'm getting reports of, you know, minor threats and attacks on family homes. It's quite clear the Taliban know who they are and where they are. Uh, I believe those attacks are being made to break down uh, their morale. Um, and then in two cases, about a month ago, we've had uh, one individual, uh, one of the embassy guards and his wife uh, shot at uh, near Shakadara on the border of uh, Kabul and uh, Kapasar province, just to the north of Kabul. Uh, in that case, uh, bullets went through the windscreen of the car and one of them went through the seat underneath the driver, uh, who's known as Ali. Um, the other incident is worse. Uh, and that's something that we can't discuss for security reasons, but uh, the Australian cabinet ministers have had reports and a let two letters sent to them by the guards group delegation about these incidents, and those letters requested that myself, uh, Dr Kay Danes and Captain Jason Skeynes, as their Australian advocates, were included in any reply. And to date, we have, we have heard had absolute radio silence um, which is, you know, kind of unsatisfactory. Uh, it's really sending a message that uh, we've abandoned these people and in the case of the government, they don't seem to really care about what is happening to them and they are obviously giving no commitment to um, uh, advising them of any intent to protect them. I mean, if we put the visas out of the way and we just talk about protection, uh, at a humanitarian level, an evacuation to a third country, uh, there's been nothing. 
So been, these people have actually been working with uh, Australia. They've been doing things for Australia. Uh, they've been protecting Australians. And, and I understand it from reading the speech today, they've only received not, no more than $30 a day for doing the work they did. It's yeah, it, it's actually extraordinary when the numbers are put on it, isn't it? Well, that is an aspect of it. I mean, one of the arguments that could be put and uh, is that you know, okay, if they're so worried about this situation, then they should be seeking asylum in a neighbouring country like Pakistan or Iran. In the case of Pakistan, we saw the Afghan ambassador's daughter abducted today and treated very harshly. Um, you know, the place is full of um, uh, terrorists, you know, it's full of Taliban, it's the homeland of the Taliban. Um, in the case of Iran, we see, you know, at least in the Hazara community, they're being sold uh, by their leader, uh, Mohakik, as um, mercenaries to fight in Syria. Uh, and then for other Afghan groups, ethnic groups, life is not really very good in Iran at all. There's very little opportunity for them. Um, they'd be basically living on the streets there. Uh, it's an option that's been discussed. But if we go back to why they have that economic constraint and they can't seek um, asylum in places like the UAE, it is it is an, uh, an economic problem for them because uh, at least when I was there in 2011 and, and 12, uh, the security guards uh, were working as translators and security guards and they were being paid uh, you know, broad terms around about nine hundred and something dollars a month US. Um, when the contract changed from Heart Security to Garda World in about twenty fifteen, their salary was reduced down to around about six hundred. Uh, sorry, uh, six hundred and something dollars US a month uh, because they were no longer considered translators. Um, now. Okay, it's a side issue, but they were still required to perform translation duties to enable the embassy. Um, so while the contractual obligations and their duties may have changed on paper, they're essentially doing the same job for less money, and thus we arrive at this point, and they're not as economically prepared to flee the country. Um, so it kind of rubs a little bit of salt into the wound of being abandoned. It's, um, but also there's a, there's an, to me, there appears to be an issue of, um, you know, even the, the, I guess that the emphasis on the salary, the emphasis on the daily income also places a greater moral obligation, does it not, on the Australian government to, to get these people out? Well, I think if, and we may have spoken to it in our um, previous podcast, I think you would be hard-pressed to find an Australian that would work under the conditions that these men have worked. Um, you know, they work 12-hour shifts day and night through very cold winters, go down to minus 25 degrees. Um, you know, Kabul is at uh, 8,000 feet or, say, the same height as Mount Kosciuszko. Um, it's at the foot of the Hindu Kush. It gets freezing cold in winter. Um, 
summertime it gets quite hot it's it's high altitude anybody that's experienced 40 degree heat at 8,000 feet knows how uncomfortable that is and they've also performed their duty every year through the privations of Ramadan where they're unable to uh, eat or drink um, during daylight hours um, now they've done this pretty much without complaint they've endured uh, you know, complex and sustained attacks from the insurgents and defended the embassy. Um, you know, I, I think if you found any employee in Australia that had given that level of service and then you were to not deny them your uh, duty of care, whether it be moral or statutory, um, you'd find yourself in front of an industrial relations tribunal pretty fast. That's something that uh, is actually quite quite an interesting element to all of this. Um, you've had some involvement with the the, the people that are um, trying to get out of Kabul who've worked for Australia. Uh, can you briefly describe how you uh, how you came to know them? Yeah, well, when I took up my post of uh, facilities manager as the employee of uh, an Afghan company that had the contract uh, to supply construction and facilities maintenance services to the embassy um, in what is called the Green Zone in Kabul in the suburb of Wazir Akbar Khan, um, you know, when you walk into the place, of course, there's armed security everywhere. Uh, and there's three levels of security. You have the Afghan local national security guards who are the, the people at the moment seeking our protection. Then you have third country nationals, many of whom are, are Gurkhas um, and Indians, um, and they work as uh, gate commanders and dog handlers for bomb sniffing. And then you have uh, Australian expatriate uh, security um, commanders uh, in each building and uh, I got to know the the Afghan local national staff simply because uh, when I got out of my car uh, or went through the gates uh, had the car bomb checked and then got into the green zone and we parked outside our building uh, these men were present and my job required me to walk around uh, the various embassy buildings which are spread out uh, around uh, two city blocks uh, to supervise my staff and to deliver services to the clients. And, of course, every one of these buildings is guard by, guarded by at least four of these local national staff. Um, it became very apparent to me uh, that when I was outside the safety of the buildings that if anything happened... I would be relying on these guys uh, to protect me because I was unarmed and I wasn't wearing body armour or a helmet uh, because, to be honest, that makes you a bit of a target and we had tall buildings nearby. Um, but I would be hiding behind a HESCO barricade with these guys, you know, <laughs> shooting at the enemy, oncoming enemy. So my relationship with them was fairly critical and I think they realised that. But, um, look, they're, most of them are, you know, really pleasant people. Um, they come from diverse backgrounds. Some of them, like Dr Ishmael, are professionals. Others uh, were 
you know, in the army uh, some years ago and they had skill sets that suited the work they were doing. And some of them were younger fellows who were being mentored into the role. Um, but, you know, the Afghans are incredibly hospitable and, hospitable and pleasant people. And uh, they frequently invited me to join them for lunch outside the building, sitting on the ground on a rug and enjoying food and drinking tea and talking about various aspects of our lives and engaging in that sort of communion that cements uh, enduring friendships. And here we are uh, a decade later and where many of them are still friends. Now, I've got uh, the vision up on screen. Uh, who, who, who can we see here? It's obvious that uh, uh, Ishmael, the, the, the authorised rep, is right in the middle uh, reading. Um, how many of them, that most of the people in the sh that are in shot would be known to you, wouldn't they? Yes, there's several fairly familiar faces there. Um, you know, just to Ishmael's right, we have Samad Habibi, um, lovely man, um, and one of the authorised representatives for uh, the group of uh, 106 uh, security guards. There's also another group of uh, ancillary staff and maintenance workers numbering, I think, around about... Uh, think 40 uh, or 41 so in total we have about 147 members of staff there who were engaged up into the point where the embassy closed and then there are uh, representatives of another group I think of around about uh, 29 or 30 uh, retired or redundant staff who are also seeking protection. So there was a number mentioned not so long ago, about 140. Is that the sort of number we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, currently serving between the security guards and the uh, the BMC Sodexo uh, facility staff and the um, Jones Lang LaSalle uh, contracted maintenance staff, we're looking at around about 147. Um, and then with former staff who may have uh, resigned or retired, uh, you know, a few years ago um, due to changes in contract or downsizing of build the number of buildings the embassy had. Uh, you know, we're getting up, um, I guess, around about uh, 180 individuals uh, seeking protection. Now, Pat, the, the, I guess we, we know what the problem is. We know that the Taliban are advancing, they're moving quickly. Anyone familiar with the story of you know, how ISIS came into into being and it is an Islamic state back in 2014 would know that people in pickup trucks can move very fast and do a lot of damage. Um, what is the state of play for the advocates like yourself now? What's the next step? Uh, yeah, look, I wish I had a, a clear crystal ball on that, Tom. Um, my, my crystal ball on this is always a little bit hazy and I, I gaze into it daily and nightly. Um, this is such a fluid situation. I, I think what is clear if we're pragmatic about it is we're going to see a similar deterioration uh, in Afghanistan to the one we saw after 1989 when the, the Russians withdrew. The difference this time where uh, you had a functioning government uh, and 
it deteriorated because of the various factions of that government um, uh, turned into the Mujahideen War and then we saw the rise of the Taliban in the mid-90s. Uh, I think, you know, it was three years after the Russians left that we saw Najibullah and his brother executed by the Taliban. Uh, they had been hiding in a UN compound for some time before that. They rejected uh, protection from Ahmad Shah Massoud, who was more or less in charge of the place at that time. Um, that's an old story. We don't need to rehash it. I think this time around, we're going to see a very rapid deterioration because the circumstances are slightly different. It's quite clear that the US and the coalition uh, are not supportive of the Ghani government. Um, uh, we're seeing the results of the US negotiations which excluded the, the Afghan government in Doha and uh, Moscow uh, come to fruition now. Uh, without going into the detailed politics that, I think the US... Uh, gave in to the, the initial demands of the Taliban in the first round of negotiations where prisoners were to be released and coalition forces to leave the country by a set date, which was September 11. Um, I think the Taliban really do feel like uh, they've already won and the uh, rapidly deteriorating situation out in the provinces and indeed on the outskirts, Gabul would indicate that they are going to win. What the, um, what the handover to a new regime, if you like, going from uh, the is democratically modelled Islamic Republic of Afghanistan to the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan or, or whatever uh, title is going to be put on the Sharia-dominated uh, new government is is yet to be seen. Uh, it, 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 I think there's certainly, if history tells us anything, it, it's going to be bloody. There's going to be a lot of conflict. Um, Afghans do not have it in their makeup to adopt non-violent transitions of government. Uh, they're tribal. Uh, you know, they're not to be criticised for that. It's just the way they are. Um, in a meeting tonight uh, with uh, leading Afghan diaspora and uh, some former ministers, female ministers from Afghanistan, we talked about the external influences of Afghanistan, on Afghanistan that cause instability, mainly being Pakistan and to some extent Iran, and then also the internal divisions within the country that leads to instability. So when you have internal and external factors destabilising the country, it's very easy for a, um, an oppressive regime that's well-resourced to walk in. Now, call me old-fashioned, call me cynical, but I see uh, a resurgence of McCarthyist geopolitical um, agenda emerging from the US, and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the Americans indirectly back the Taliban um, 
against any resistance from the existing government and army. Uh, they did that with the Mujahideen against the Russians, and they do tend to resort to their old MO when the going gets rough. But, you know, it's a watch this space. The um, other challenge, uh, of course, when you're an advocate in this situation, um, and you've got people that are in another time zone, and they uh, they work at a, a different pace than you do, uh, it can have an impact on you. What what's this process having an imp- having an impact on when when it comes to to Pat Ryan? Oh, well, look, it, it does tend to leave you on the ragged edge. Um, you know, I went into Afghanistan, eyes wide open. I came out of Afghanistan um, and it had a, a major impact on my health uh, and I managed to recover from that. Uh, you know, the country has massive health and sanitation problems. Uh, I nearly died from intestinal amoebiasis and comorbid conditions that evolved from that, uh, you know, on the car- cardiac system and, so forth um you know i suffered from an insomnia for 18 months and you know i've had a few lasting um you know issues in that respect but i think anybody that works in afghanistan for any length of time goes through similar experiences i certainly know some of my former expat colleagues have um you know with the present situation uh I've been engaged in some very constructive things with my relationships with uh, former colleagues and Afghan Afghan colleagues, uh, you know, in terms of micro projects with uh, microfinancing business uh, aid and development within, you know, a small community uh, and uh, writing, uh, you know, grant application proposals for water and sanitation projects. Uh, in provinces around Kabul. Um, It's very rewarding. There's a lot of positive stuff to be achieved. At the present time, to answer the question with the time zones and that sort of thing, uh, yeah, I mean, they're waking up at around about 11.30 Sydney time. Uh, There's always, you know, two or 300 WhatsApp messages in the various WhatsApp groups I'm in. There's emails to be answered. Um, Where Kay Danes and I are running... um, you know, major information building systems, databases for these guys so that we can effectively advocate for them in our, you know, approaches to government um, and in our efforts to seek construct- a constructive solution. Um, and then, of course, there's uh, the wrap at the end of the day uh, and with that time difference that can often take me up until uh, one or two o'clock in the morning or even in case of yesterday where we have a, a major rally occurring uh, 3 a.m. Uh, and then, you know, feet are on the ground again at 8 in the morning. So it, it does tend to wear you out a little bit. Um, it requires great mental agility. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward, I hope, to having some downtime from this uh, when the Australian government hopefully says, um, okay, we're going to treat this as a humanitarian issue and evacuate these people somewhere so that we have time to assess them and uh, look at their suitability for resettlement in other countries, whether that be Australia or elsewhere. 
Pat, no, it's interesting to, to speak to you at a, at a point in time when things are actually on a knife edge and uh, a country that is somewhat war-torn uh, and remains war-torn and entering into another another phase of um, you know, growing pains, if you will. Um, thanks for sharing some of your perspectives and then giving people the opportunity to understand what goes on in that part of the world. Uh, look, Tom, I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss this in depth with you. Um, I think it's an important thing that we get the message out uh, to Australians so that they understand what's really going on. And uh, hopefully they uh, get to their keyboards and write to their local federal member and even to the Minister for Foreign Affairs or to the Prime Minister and Defence Minister about this issue and express their desire to see uh, the right and moral thing done by these people who have enabled our presence for 20 years in Afghanistan. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick, and uh, I hope you get some sleep reasonably soon. It's on the agenda tonight, mate. Thanks. <laughs>